All right. Hello and welcome back to From A to Xenon. I'm Jahan. I'm Avery. And today we're talking about Phantom of the Megaplex, just in Ooh. time for Halloween. Yes. <laughs> Remember the movie, how they always had like the creepy effect every time Phantom came? We definitely need that. Absolutely. Lots of lots of fun sound effects in this movie, which is very meta, I'd say. It's like as meta as a children's movie gets, I guess, which I, I really mm. love. Agreed. Agreed. Phantom of the Megaplex is about Pete, a high school employee of a megaplex in his town. I don't know which town. They don't say. They don't say. We just know it's not LA. <laughs> um, he's 17 years old. So they tell us a little bit of history right off the bat. The old megaplex got torn down or the old like local movie theater got torn down and it was replaced with this megaplex. But the rumor is that when they tore it down, there was one person still inside and they are now the Phantom of the Megaplex. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, they show a clip of a building being demolished and are like, maybe there was a person in there. <laughs> I was like, yo, this got dark really quickly for a decom, but you know, it was the early 2000s. We'll just, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. And much like our last movie, this one is about a teen who cares way too much about work. I was never this serious as a teen. But Pete is obsessed with the fact that he is the youngest assistant manager this theater has ever had. And then he very rapidly introduces us to way too many characters. Right? Okay. I was going to say, we get introduced to a whole slew of characters. Everybody has nicknames. There's Scary Terry. Because she tells scary stories. There's Racy Lacey. A bad nickname because she just moves fast. And I don't think the nickname implies that. Yeah, that's not what I got from Racy Lacey. And then there's question mark because this because <laughs> this boy always like answers with a question. To be fair, they find the time to put all of those people and all of their traits in this movie, but they really like immediately introduce you to probably seven employees of this theater. Yeah, it, it, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. But the reason why we're being introduced to everybody so quickly and so like in a hurry is because the movie theater is getting or the Megaplex is getting ready for this premiere of Midnight Mayhem. It's a movie that was filmed nearby and it's going to premiere at the theater. So the whole staff or the whole crew has to get ready for this like big premiere that's happening. Yes. And so running the char or running everything is their senior manager, Sean. And then you also have Movie Mason, played by Mickey Rooney. A cinema giant. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, and he is the owner of the former theater that was in this location. He is not employed by this theater, but he comes into work every day, gives them his work schedule and wears a tux. He's a delight. He really is. So we meet Sean and he is there. He's prepping them for the premiere. He gets a call from Wolfgang Niedermeyer, the <laughs> owner of the Megaplex, who is really laying it on thick, how perfect he needs everything. On this call, he also says... He is making his son-in-law, La Monica, the general manager over Sean. It took me the entire movie to put together that La Monica was his son-in-law. I presumed it was his hot date. What a wild <laughs> name to give the son-in-law's character and not clarify. <laughs> there are a lot of, to be fair, there's a lot of weird names in this, in this film. <laughs> 
not only does it have to be perfect for this like big premiere, but also Pete wants this to be perfect because he's trying to impress this girl that he likes, Caitlyn. He's gotten her early passes for the premiere. And so like, he really wants to show her that like, you know, I'm the business. Pete goes home. He's done with his morning meetings. He'll be back for the midnight premiere. Well, he'll be back for the evening shift. And he goes home and we meet his mom and his two siblings. And his two siblings are just totally obsessed with movies. They only talk in movie references. And frankly, I don't know anybody like that. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed because I was only like, oh, these siblings, Karen and Brian, are me and Jahan? We are those siblings? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Who loves movies that much? (laughs) You don't quote movies all the time? I am just a movie fan standing in front of a webcam asking you. <laughs> okay, I really leaned into a Notting Hill bit there. And abandoned it. I thought you were going to say to, to talk about a pod or to talk about movies. Anyway. To talk about a movie. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, they're obsessed with movies. In today's day and age, they absolutely would be podcasters. Um, <laughs> but they're like... They don't really give us their ages, but I guessed around 12 and, like, 9. That's a good guesstimate. I would say, yeah. Because, like, the old the sister's clearly very eager to be treated like a tween to teen, um, and the brother is fully eager to be treated as a baby. <laughs> yep, yep. So we find out, like, pretty early when Pete is going home, and, like, we meet the family, that there is no dad in the picture. Um, that, you know, once again, we have a missing, <laughs> we have a missing parent, And it's very clear that, like, Pete helps out with his mom, like, helps with, like, family duties and, like, taking care of siblings. Karen and Brian are going to go to the movies on the night of the premiere. Karen wants to see University of Death. (laughs) But her mom says no. Meanwhile, young Brian wants to go see, what is it, Farmer Farmer George? Farmer Brown goes to town. (laughs) Farmer Brown goes to town, yes. The number of fictional movies they make up for this is really impressive. Yeah. And so the mom is like, no, you're not going to go to University of Death. That's scary. You're going to go see Farmer Brown with your brother. And she's like, "Ugh." The mom calls it College of Blood, which I thought was very funny. (laughs) Also, I think we need to make a tally at some point of all the dead parents in Disney Channel original movies. We've done like five movies and I think we're at like four dead parents <laughs> yes four four out of five of our main characters or our protagonists are missing a parent it's so sad it's very sad <laughs> oh actually maybe only three of five because okay stuck in the suburbs has both three out of five of our protagonists are missing parents at this point that's not good numbers and we know there's more to come we learned that the dad was also obsessed with movies, which is just some fun backstory. But I will I will say, to be fair, even though Pete does contribute and, like, help out with his siblings, his mom, like, clearly recognizes that he, like, works too much. And she's like, you put too many hours in the theater. And she's scared that he's going to be burnt. And I quote, burned out before he's 30. So mom knows, like, clearly that he works too much and she just wants him to be a kid he like is very passionate about making money i (laughs) it's not it's not like i'm sure he contributes to the family but it's not about that it's like his life is this theater we find out that the mom is dating someone named george and the reason the sister has to babysit brian tonight is because george is taking her on a date 
And these kids are obsessed with George. They want him to propose and propose yesterday. They're like, Mm -hmm. when is it going to happen, mom? They are ready for him to be their stepdad. All three of the children (laughs) obsessed with George. Um, And then there's also probably like a full like 10 seconds of close-up facial expressions on the mom and sister. Like at the end of their argument for no reason. (laughs) We we could get into that, but I think this movie had some really weird cuts. Well, we could talk about that later. The cuts of the movie were weird. <laughs> Sometimes they just hanged out on a person who did not matter's face. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Pete is annoyed that he has to take them to a theater on his big premiere night and then also bring them back on his dinner break, which I did feel was like a little bit overstretching him on the mom's part. <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, they're going to go see a movie. You're going to bring them back home on their dinner date. I should be back home by like midnight. And then Pete has to go back to work and go do this premiere. This family, again, weirdly obsessed with movies. And I say that as two people who are weirdly obsessed with movies. The mom's like, bombs could go off and those two wouldn't notice. Or somebody said, I think Pete might say that about the siblings. Mm-hmm. All they care about is movies, which is a concerning amount of movie obsession. So they go to the theater Uh, Pete's back at the theater and two people have called out sick. So all dinner breaks are canceled. Which is my favorite because one of the staff members goes, dinner (laughs) breaks are canceled and it's in violation of our union rights. (laughs) And he's right. You know who is the scab? It's Pete who's like, (laughs) okay, Ricky, maybe not tonight. Pete, if it's in the union contract, it's in the union contract. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But yes. (laughs) So the sister, we find out, is planning to sneak into the University of Death screening. Who could have seen this coming? (laughs) Yes, the plan is to leave their younger brother, Brian, at the Farmer Brown screening. And she's going to pretend to go to the bathroom and go see University of Death with her two friends. We also find out early on at the theater that Pete has a nemesis, Donnie. And Donnie wants everything that Pete has, but he's like never had to work for anything and all the girls love him. And Pete is out here saying, like, girls want guys that have, like, cars and money. And I'm just trying to make money to compete. Like, there's real animosity here. <laughs> yes. And Donnie has also showed up today because he heard Caitlin, the girl that Pete has invited and gotten all these free passes for. He heard Caitlin's going to be here. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's drama. Yeah. They are very swamped because there are not enough people to work as ticket takers. And Movie Mason steps up to the plate. He says, now is my time to shine. (laughs) He offers to do it for free, of course. (laughs) Movies are not about commerce, my friend. Movies are about magic. I love this man. (laughs) Which might be why his business went under, though. (laughs) Sean, the senior manager, gives Mason his little red theater bow tie to wear. And he looks so proud. It's so cute. There's also a line where he says, I'm ready for this because I was head usher at the Saul and Gettle Sand Palace of Burlesque. What? Mason, why in this children's movie are you telling us you worked at a palace of burlesque? (laughs) Oh my word. (laughs) The Sibs are dropped off and they are trying to get in, but they can't. The line is too long because movie Mason is holding up the line, giving people his opinions on the movie. And they're like, dude, we don't care. (laughs) Like, just let us in. And like a riot is about to ensue. The crowd is so upset. And then the senior manager, Sean, kicks Movie Mason out. He's like, you're holding up the line. 
it's too much and like kicks him out. Yeah, and he's considered a liability. I don't know what that means at that point, but yes, he he is sent on his way. And as he goes, he's like, tell my theater, even when I'm not here, it's magic is never far from my heart. Truly every movie Mason line killed me. <laughs> They're all about the, the, the magic of the movies. <laughs> the magic of movies, which again, so much fun that it's Mickey Rooney. Yes. Pete does not seem compared to his siblings to care about movies at all. He's, I don't actually understand why he, I guess he really only works there for the money, not for the magic of the movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see the point in daydreaming in the dark. His sister tells him he's locked into achievement mode and he's the oldest looking teenager she knows. Dang. <laughs> what a burn. So Pete is all about the business. He's all about making this night perfect. He like tells them that he's too busy for them and that they need to behave. Like don't cause any trouble while they are here at the theater. This is also the time where we see his crush, Caitlin. She's here. So Pete goes to go see Caitlin. And all the while, Brian is trying to, like, get candy from the candy dispenser, but the top breaks off. Oy. And then Donnie, Pete's nemesis, comes over. And I can't tell, Johan, was he, like, was he actually genuinely trying to help or was he trying to okay. sabotage? This is played very strangely because Donnie sounds extremely sweet when he says it. He's like, oh, no, you just put it back on. And then it seems like yeah. it's an accident that he opens it in a way that all the candy comes out. But I went back and watched it again because I was like, was he really being sweet and we're just, like, going to consider him the villain the rest of the movie? No. He's pretending to be sweet and he yanks the bottom <gasps> of the dispenser off. The brother had nothing to do with it. <laughs> oh, see, I didn't even catch that. I was like, oh, I couldn't tell because he was so sweet. He, I was played. He was fake acting too well. <laughs> like they needed to, to change it up so he was a worse fake actor. But maybe this, this young actor couldn't be held back. He's too talented. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the... Candy scatters all over the floor. People are tripping and slipping all over the floor. There's so many wild pratfalls. You see like four people really hit the ground hard. Their popcorn's up in the air. They look like they were in pain. <laughs> I, I literally have in my notes, was there real injury in this film? <laughs> There's going to be some lawsuits. <laughs> yes. So people are falling, tripping and slipping. But this is what kills me, Jahan, because... How, what does Pete do to solve this problem, may I ask? He, <laughs> you go. No, you go, you go. I can't even handle Pete it. Pete puts a trash can sideways, grabs a hockey stick from a movie display for a movie about the power of penguins, and proceeds to hockey, hit everything like it's a hockey puck into the trash can. And that's, nothing's going in. You're seeing like four gumballs go in at a time, but the crowd is eating it up. They are cheering. They love it. We see Caitlin look impressed for a second. Tell me why this boy didn't go get a broom. I don't know. That's what I was like. I was like, were there no brooms available? Because this is the most inefficient way to clean something up. I don't understand. I think we're supposed to believe he successfully hockeyed all of the mess away. Oh my <laughs> Lord. Yes, but... Nevertheless, the crowd loves it. And like Johan said, they're cheering him on. Donnie still ends up, even though he caused this mess, I'm now learning, he still ends up walking away with Caitlyn. And so Pete is upset. It's not right. Yeah. The sisters' friends are going into University of Death. And I just want to shout out that I had the captions on and all the background actors are talking about this movie. And one of them says, 
you know, a friend of mine went to college. He got killed. <laughs> what? <laughs> Stop. Really? <laughs> yes. I did not have the captions on and I missed this. What? It's so, so quiet, and I don't know why it's there. Oh, no. Why is this movie so dark? So they're obviously going to see a Scream-esque movie, but the sister is really trying to drop Brian off as quickly as possible, and she has to dodge the cinema sitter, who is an old lady in charge of stopping mischief in the theater, who really disappears partway through the film, and I didn't realize till right now. They're like, this was one character too many this time. Meanwhile, cut back to Peter and Peter and Caitlin are in the theater and there's some flirting happening. I live. She says that she loves his little bow tie and he gives her the bow tie. My goodness. And tells her to guard it with her life. <laughs> it's beautiful. Very some kind of wonderful. Mm, <laughs> yes. But I love it. I love their little back and forth. But then Donnie has to come and interrupt and is like, yeah, Pete, there's some issues at the popcorn maker, like the popcorn machine. So Pete has to go and like go fix that problem. I think this is the first time Pete's like, oh yeah, I could be the teenager who's free to hang out with them, even though he was just talking about how he might be up for a promotion to the girls. He was like, I could have stayed and flirted longer if I didn't have these responsibilities, like the popcorn machine, which is overflowing they only put the normal amount of popcorn in, but it's making tons. It's overflowing. It's going everywhere. The on and off switch isn't working. Pete has to be the one to unplug it. And they do acknowledge everyone else should have figured out that they could unplug it. And then another problem happens. Another issue is that in the screening of Glimpses of Genevieve, the screen is all glitchy and you can't say a thing. Yep. And yeah, things just keep popping up. Meanwhile, Brian who Pete had gone to check on, has followed him into glimpses of Genevieve and is like, this is sabotage. <laughs> Brian's out here like, yo, it's the Phantom. The Phantom is upset that such a big premiere is being done in his home. And like, it's the Phantom that is up to this. Pete sends Brian back to his theater and on his way, he hears a creepy laugh. And then for the brief, and we see the as he runs off, we see that the Farmer Brown standee in the movie theater has the creepiest, like, the eyes have been cut out, but there's, like, these creepy monster eyes in there now. Like, some, like the Phantom of the Megaplex is apparently keeping an eye on things. Also, every time they cut to a movie on the screen, it has a line extremely relevant to whatever's happening in the movie right now. So as soon as they cut from the standee watching him, the movie the sister is watching says... Every step we take, someone is watching us. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> and like when they tell Brian to stay somewhere, Farmer Brown is telling someone to stay seated. I did yeah, I did catch that. I did catch yeah, that. Yeah, they do it a, quite a, like three or four times. It's very silly. Um, but the sister goes to check on Brian and he's gone. Yep. And she's freaking out because she's like, oh no, I was in charge of him. And she thinks that she's lost Brian. But little does he know that, like, Brian is with Pete, so, like, everything is okay. Another issue is that senior manager Sean is missing. <laughs> he's not in his office. He's not answering his cell. And the owner of the theater keeps calling to check on how the premiere is progressing. So they, they got to find him. Pete gets help from Merle, the projectionist, to fix the projector. But there's a new disaster. Brian keeps saying, you know, you need me to help solve this. You need me. And um, 
Pete is not hearing it. He is just trying to, he's like, there's problems at the theater every day. I just got to fix them so we can get the premiere off without a hitch. But then he hears Sean is still missing. And there's nobody to set up the velvet ropes. Nothing's going according to plan. Customers are getting pissed. (laughs) Yes. Every theater that something goes wrong in, these people are furious at a wild level. And Pete keeps having to be, we will refund you. We are so sorry. We will restart your movie. And every time they are just furious with him. Terry and Lacey see someone in a black cloak. Mm-hmm. Who's this? <laughs> it's the Phantom. Um, the sister is waiting outside the men's room trying to find her brother. Still no luck. And Merle, as he keeps trying to fix everything, he's not seeing any problem with the lights. It seems like someone's done something very deliberate to break all of this down. Mm-hmm. Sabotage. Sabotage. <laughs> but at this point, yeah, I think Brian is too invested in like figuring out who's done it that like Farmer Brown is no longer a thing anymore. He's like, he's partnered up with his older brother. They want to find what's going on. They end up finding Sean and he's tied up. They go down to the basement for the velvet ropes and Sean is just tied up and like has duct tape over his mouth. Yes. And then we also find out that the owner of the theater is coming earlier than expected. So now like, things are really like going bad because it's like everything is chaotic and the owner is coming earlier than expected. We've got to get things together. Pressure is on. The sister finally goes back to her movie, sits down and says, I gotta go find Brian and then leaves. I don't know why we had that scene in here. I don't know. At this point, she should have just given up on University of Death because she's missed so much of this movie. You have not seen this movie. And Sean? Gets right back to work after they untie him. I was like, sir, you were kidnapped? (laughs) He just immediately is like, yeah, we got to get this premiere ready. (laughs) But yes, so the sister finally reunites with the brothers when she goes back to try and find Brian one more time. Yeah, they meet up like on the escalators. Going opposite directions, just as the phantom switches the directions the escalators are going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He orders them back to Farmer Brown and they go, and Brian's immediately like, Karen, we absolutely can't go see Farmer Brown. <laughs> There's simply no way. Yeah. Brian's like, no, we got to go like solve this mystery. Karen's like, I don't know. Then Brian's like, what did dad always say? The movies can teach you about life. And then Brian realizes the titles of the movie are matching the troubles that are happening in the theater. Brian's clearly the smart one. I just want to point that out. He really is the true hero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so glimpses of Genevieve, the projector is not working, so they're only seeing glimpses of the movie. Cut to black, the lights are flickering on and off. I also thought this was very funny because they're basically getting a free 4D movie experience, I think. (laughs) And also, I went to see In the Heights this summer and there was a blackout and that movie is about a blackout. (laughs) The Phantom of the Regal Theaters in Houston, Texas. So they realize there's a pattern. So they're like, we can figure out where he's going to strike next. So the next thing to happen. This has to be my favorite thing. (laughs) So the next trouble is at Cyclone Summer. My favorite thing has to be the British woman that's screaming with her hands up in the air. Run for your life, children. It's a tornado. (laughs) So somebody has put a giant powerful fan from elsewhere in the theater in front of this theater. I do not know how you roll a giant fan to the front of the theater with no one noticing. Exactly! (laughs) It's not, we're never told. 
but this powerful fan is blowing and then that, my favorite thing happens which is everyone's popcorn is getting blown back and they just show one boy who has his mouth open and he's just eating it as it flies into his mouth <laughs> which is the most Disney Channel original movie gag they could have put it I think so many things happen just in Cycle of Summer like the British woman the man of the popcorn somebody's toupee comes off Caitlin's also in this movie yes the toupee hits her <laughs> yes I, I love, this is by far the mayhem that I loved the most, hands down, with Cycle of It's so silly. And then Pete comes to save the day again. I do not understand how this fan is so powerful. He is being blown backwards by it. Like he has to like really fight to unplug it. <laughs> he fixes it and then we suddenly check in with mom yes. whose date has gone south. Mm -hmm. So their first restaurant, their reservation didn't take. The second restaurant is closed for business forever. And George is just like very apologetic. But then the mom starts speaking in this wild metaphor. There's some potted plants outside of the restaurant. And she starts making this wild metaphor about blended families where she's like, if a plant is happy in one pot, do you really want to uproot it to combine it with a plant that's happy in another pot? And it goes on for so long. And George jumps on board and is like, I guess... If plants are content, we can leave them where they are and take it one day at a time. <laughs> this metaphor was not subtle. No, the mom was like, is clearly not sure about changing her family dynamic, even though the children are sure about George. But yes, Pete calls mom and he's like, hey, my dinner break is canceled. Can you come pick up the littles? And she's like, George, I'm so sorry to change our date yet again, but we got to go pick up my kids from the theater. Mm -hmm. However, because George is having apparently the worst date night of his life, his car stalls. But the siblings are told to wait on a blue bench until mom comes and they are very upset because they are very invested in this mystery. And then we start getting some finger pointing happening because Sean is like convinced that the Phantom is movie Mason because they kicked him out. And now he's trying to sabotage this premiere. So like he's finger pointing at Movie Mason, but Karen and Brian like don't believe him. They're like, no, it cannot be him. Like he loves the theater. He would never do this. Like they are out here defending Movie Mason. Right, because they're always at the movies and he is there every day just to tell people about movies he loves. Like, so they're like, he would never do this. Movies are sacred to him. Yep. <laughs> Pete is sent by Sean to go find Mason. And he finds out that Mason did come in an hour ago to see a different movie, which uh, we hadn't heard. And then Brian finds Mason's work schedule in the trash and is like, oh, we're on to something. <laughs> and so little, little brother Brian <laughs> asks where Mason takes his dinner breaks. And we find out it's in the basement. He and the sister go down probably four flights of stairs towards the basement. And then you see them look down a spiral staircase and there's still like another gazillion <laughs> flights. And I'm like, how tall do they think this building is? Why did they put so much stair walking? But they see a glimpse of the phantom down below and Karen is out now, <laughs> even though she was here to see a scary movie, she is done with this. She keeps trying to back out and Brian's like, nah, we gotta do it. <laughs> and she keeps being like, yo, I'm out. And he's like, no, we're going to solve the mystery. Also, I do think a child should not be walking into a basement that they think a criminal is in. 
I agree with Karen, but Karen does have to accompany her younger brother. I also want to point out with all these crazy stairs, are we supposed to believe that Movie Mason, an old man, goes up and down these <laughs> stairs every day for lunch? What? It's so many flights of stairs. <laughs> I do not know if he has the knees for it. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't think he does. Also, these children are shouting on the staircase. They are never once whispering. They think there is a criminal in this basement and they think they've just caught a glimpse of him and they're like, I thought that was the phantom. <laughs> Loud as they can. Karen's like, mom is probably waiting for us because they don't know her car's broken down. Mm -hmm. And Brian's like, well, she'll be proud if we unmask the phantom. And I'm like, I don't know about this. <laughs> Pete passes the bench. And because he passes the blue bench that he left his siblings on, and because he doesn't see them anymore, he just assumes that their mom came and picked them up. He doesn't know that they're in the basement. <laughs> Again, the children have made many poor decisions. <laughs> but they find a basement full of weird and old theater stuff. Mm. Uh, very cool looking like, I don't know if it's props or like old standees, like, very like decor from an old theater, I'd say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then Brian finds a long tunnel. A long, bright tunnel. And he's like, oh, am I still alive? Because a uh, tunnel with a light at the end. You know what that means? I don't know why this child is making a joke about being dead right now. <laughs> they go into the tunnel and Brian's like, this stuff must be worth a lot of money. <laughs> and Karen finds a Phantom of the Opera poster and she's like, Maybe it is Movie Mason. Look at this poster. And Movie Mason walks in and they're terrified. Literally, this man came out of nowhere, though. I would have been terrified, too. He just popped up. We also have to cut back to mom because... Oh, yes. Mom is, you know, trying to find a way to, like, tell the kids that, like, she the car is broken down and she's not there. So she tries to call the payphones. You know, because this is a time of payphones. She calls the payphones at the theater. And first of all, can I just say the first person that picks up, she calls a teenager picks up, a random teenager picks up and answers the phone, City Morgue. <laughs> and the mom gets freaked out. But she also immediately calls right back. She's like, I must have had the right number, even though it was the morgue. <laughs> She calls back again and like, I think it's Mark. Mark picks up the phone. Or, it's question mark. Yeah, it's question mark. Wait, am I just getting that? Oh, you. <laughs> wow. A thrill to witness Avery understanding why he's called question mark. Wait, I didn't realize it that way. Mark, okay, I get it. I get it. <laughs> but it's the most useless person she could have gotten because he's like, Oh, you're looking, everything is question. He's like, you're looking for Pete? You want me to find him? Yes. Well, first she asked like, do you see children on a blue bench? And he's like, no. Then he's like, oh, can you go find Pete? He leaves the phone off the hook looking to go find Pete. But Racy Lacey comes right behind them and like sees the phone off the hook and hangs up. So nothing comes of that. She's too efficient. Mm. That's her fatal flaw. <laughs> So the Littles are down in the basement with Movie Mason, who they think could be the Phantom. And they just straight up ask him, they're like, hey, are you the Phantom? <laughs> <laughs> and I am obsessed with Movie Mason's response because these terrified children think they are in a basement with a criminal. They ask him if he's a criminal and he does not lead with no. <laughs> he jumps into this beautiful monologue about the wonder of life. He's really like, 
you know, as we get older, true wonder is hard to come by. We're no longer babies discovering butterflies. It's like this, he's really waxing poetic. And then he's like, but there's always magic at the movies. You know, we go to the movies, we all learn there's no place like home. And (laughs) to destroy that magic and shatter those moments would be the greatest sin he can imagine. So... Movie Mason is off the table. This man would never ruin a movie. Mm-mm, mm-mm. He's too pure. <laughs> but honestly, it was so silly to have this monologue here, but I also loved it because Avery, we are movie lovers. Our favorite thing to do together is go to the Regal Cinemas at Greenway Plaza. <laughs> I, I love the movie so much. And one of the things, I mean, obviously I missed many things over this pandemic, but one of the things I missed most was going to the movies. <laughs> I will say that I did go to the movies two weeks ago for the first time at our cinema where Jahan and I have frequently gone to the movies together. And it was just, it was so beautiful. It was just like, I miss this place. I got to go back there earlier this summer when I took my family to that broken down screening of In the Heights, but it was just... It was wonderful to be back. So they are certain it's not Movie Mason. Mm -mm. And once again, Sean is missing. And Pete also can't find Caitlin. So people are going missing all around. (laughs) So many things are going wrong here. Sean's missing. The fire sprinklers go off. (laughs) Honestly, the level of like every scene, another like three things happens. It's never just one thing. (laughs) Also, it took me so long to realize this was a midnight premiere. I was like, cause it was like daylight when they dropped the kids off, but the kids were seeing like seven o'clock movies. So I was like, what's happening? And then I realized it should have made sense to me immediately. The movie is called Midnight Mayhem. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. I just realized that question mark was because his name was Mark. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) This terrifying lady named Tori Hicks who they really let this character actress go all out. They were like, play a high-powered agent in the most silly way you can. (laughs) And she basically comes over and is she's the agent of all the celebrities in attendance. And she's like, they're very annoyed about having to wait for this amateur premiere this long. And she, she like is like, we are going to leave if Sean, the senior manager, does not greet us personally at our cars. And then she also like crushes Pete's hand and you hear all the cracks. <laughs> but um, so more pressure is added. Now the celebrities are possibly leaving and Donnie's back. Yes. So we didn't talk about this, but at the theater, there's a King Arthur like Excalibur type of thing where you have to like pull and tug and like whoever gets it, I guess, gets a prize. The employees know that every like 10,000th tug or whatever, it gets released anyway. Of course it has to be Donnie, Pete's nemesis, that like gets the sword out. And so he's all like, well, I'm here to claim my prize. I want to stay at the premiere with Caitlyn. And like, ooh, there was some heated confrontations, Johan. I thought they were going to fight. I did too. Especially because Pete's like looking at Caitlyn. He's like, oh, I got a posture. And I'm just like, no, Pete, you don't have to be that for her. But you know, she also never says he doesn't have to because she barely speaks in this movie. She really doesn't. She's just there. Donnie speaks way more than the romantic interest. Yes, yes. <laughs> this is very early 2000s and I do not approve. <laughs> Give women their agency. Mm-hmm. Even Karen, the sister, does less than her brother. Wow. Okay. Lots to unpack in Phantom of Megaplex. But yes, so Donnie has pulled out the sword. He is trying to bully another employee of the theater into giving him passes to the booked premiere. And before Pete can kick him out, the fire alarms go off, the sprinklers in a theater go off, and he suddenly has to deal with very, like, wet patrons of this this movie. 
the siblings come and find Pete, who really thought they were at home already. <laughs> and he's like, mom still hasn't come? What's going on? And they think they figured out who the Phantom is. Yeah. So they think that it's Merle, the guy who's in charge of like the projection or in charge of the screenings. And so they all go to confront Merle, but he's actually trying to fix the machine. Yeah, because the projector is showing this like scary trailer for Midnight Mayhem, like on repeat nonstop. Mm -hmm. And Brian's like, who else would know how to use a projector? He's underappreciated. He's underpaid. And he's upset that his job keeps being automated, which is all stuff like Brian heard Merle say earlier. If I was a villain every time I was underpaid and underappreciated. <laughs> Avery, it's time. It's your origin story. Oh, shoot. <laughs> so Merle is trying to fix it and Brian will not stop accusing him. And both of his siblings are like, yo, Brian, back up, man. <laughs> it's just like this nine-year-old who's like, you did it, didn't you? <laughs> but then they see the Phantom is in the theater setting up a fog machine yeah. <laughs> and they never question that in any way <laughs> no but i guess because they see the phantom like causing mayhem below like merle is automatically excluded from the list of suspects <laughs> he is exonerated brian does not apologize he just admits he's wrong <laughs> but pete at this point decides he does need his siblings help because they've been like helping him figure things out he's like i guess I do need your movie knowledge. And the sister's like, finally, we need to apply cinematic logic. And so Brian determines that in order to figure out like what's going to happen at the Midnight Mayhem, they need to go online to find spoilers so they can figure out what the Phantom is going to be up to next. Pete's like, they've been keeping the plot of this movie under lock and key. You're never going to figure it out. And Brian's like, have you never heard of spoiler sites? And he says it like they're, he's like, they're a movie geek's dream. And I'm just like, no, movie geeks don't want spoilers. Never. That's No, I don't want to know anything that's happening. Sometimes I won't even watch trailers to get the most joy out of something. <laughs> so they go into the only place with internet is Sean's office. <laughs> they go into Sean's office. The door creepily swings closed and Sean is hanging on the back of the door, blindfolded with his mouth covered and his hands cuffed. And they all scream because it is fucking terrifying he looks dead <laughs> i do not know how they decided that was how he would look but he is like it is a man like stuck to the back of a door it's scary yeah it is it is it is truly frightening i'm also trying to figure out like who was able to like pick him up and like hang him on a door i have no idea <laughs> i guess to cut away from the kids getting sean down <laughs> they cut to a scene of Terry and Hillary, the theater employees in the bathroom. Nothing happens in this scene. They find that the sisters' friends have snuck into the theater. And then we never see the sisters' friends again. I really think they were just like, we need to cut away so we can... These kids can't lift Sean off the door. <laughs> we return to the office and they've gotten Sean down. Brian is still on the computer. And all of a sudden, Niedermeyer, the owner of the theater, has arrived and all of the theater employees leap into action. Mm -hmm. The press and fans are here. They got to go and make their proper introductions, like, to get ready. They were supposed to have, I guess, assume, like, as the people were coming in, like, have balloons fall from the ceiling. It ends up being water balloons <laughs> and gets, like, all over, what is it, the director? Who else? John? The owner of the theater and... La Monica. Yes. <laughs> His son-in-law. <laughs> Everybody gets soaked. Everybody gets soaked. Pete is somehow missed, which I thought was 
Very fun. It's Niedermeyer, right? Niedermeyer, yeah. Okay. He's like all upset because the mayhem monster, like inflatables that were on the roof of the cinema have been removed. So those are gone and no one knows why. Uh-huh. And then we cut back to Brian who finally figures out the spoiler of the movie. <laughs> the monster, the monster traps the kids in an auditorium and then like grows bigger as it sucks all of the air from the room. And the kids are like, that's going to be hard to recreate for the Phantom. <laughs> but they're like, we got to tell Pete. And uh, they run to find Pete. And all, as they exit the office, Caitlin finds a key. Meanwhile, outside, Mason is having his moment. Would you like to <laughs> share? He's he's singing. He's dancing. He's having a good time. Like, pretty much giving a show to the press. And Sean is like, old man, like, get out of here. Like, scram, beat it. And this woman is like, oh, is there a problem? And he's like, hush, I've got it handled. Only to find out it's the big celebrity that everyone expected to come. Madison Ashley Metz. Ah! Thank you. I would not have remembered <laughs> that name. Turns out she grew up in this town. She used to be a patron of the theater and she loves Movie Mason. She's friends with him. He told her to become an actress. Yes. This is why you need small local businesses and the people at them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she's like, I'm going to go into this premiere with my escort, Mason. So he's her date now. He is now allowed to be here. <laughs> and mom and George finally arrive to find the children. And they are also allowed into the premiere. The siblings and Pete meet up again. And he's like, the inflatables are gone and we can't find the roof level key. And Caitlin's like, this key? <laughs> and in classic horror movie bad decision making they're like yeah time to run up to the roof <laughs> karen pete brian they all head to the roof and try to figure out where these balloons are and when they get there they have a little heart to heart it's beautiful terrible timing but beautiful yeah <laughs> pete admits that like the siblings are growing up and you know they're they're growing up they're they're great humans smart they're smart human beings and then as they like go in for a hug and they embrace the phantom attacks. He puts a cover over them and ties them up. And my favorite is young Brian going, we've been phantomized. <laughs> it is so wild that these children are tied up on top of a roof under a blanket. This is so dangerous. <laughs> and again, we know this building is apparently dozens of stories high because <laughs> they've been on the stairs. <laughs> we go back into the lobby of the premiere where... The mom has a throwaway line that I just want to shout out because it is a special decom moment. The mom goes, I've seen Katie Seagal. I've seen LeVar Burton. Haven't seen a single one of my own kids. And if you listen to our first episode, you know, Katie Seagal is the star of Smart House, which was directed by LeVar Burton. <laughs> I don't know why they chose to do that, but I loved it. <laughs> They're like, these are the celebrities whose names we're going to use. Our celebrities. <laughs> I love it. Pure Disney endorsement. The Sibs are trying to get themselves untied back on the roof. And this is finally Pete's turn to be like his siblings. He's like, we got to shuffle over to that pipe. And they're like, why? He's like, it's in this movie. And he's like, when the guy gets unstuck from the fishing net. And it's finally like his moment to reference a movie. And they love it. The, the Sibs are all about it. So while they're trying to figure that out, we go back to the theater and mayhem is happening, Shahan. Pure mayhem. The inflatables that were supposed to be on the roof have terrorized and trapped the audience in the theater. 
I'll say it. The monster inflatable was way bigger than I was expecting. <laughs> also, did you expect there to be more than one? Because I didn't. I thought there would just be one. There's like three. Yeah, and two of them are gorillas, which seems to have nothing to do with the movie. But they're blocking the doors and the monster is inflated on the balcony and like attacking the crowd. And it is like a massive inflatable. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how the heck it got through these doors. (laughs) Well, I think at one point Brian's like they would have had to deflate it to get it down from here. Oh, okay. They somehow had to deflate it and then like reinflate it on the balcony. I don't know how the fog machine. No, they must have had a way to inflate. Them, right? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. They don't bother explaining that to us. <laughs> but the sibs are back up on the roof and we watch a really long sequence of them trying to unhook their ropes on a pipe and they finally do it and they rush to the theater. They can't get in because of the inflatable gorillas. And so they go up to the balcony. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Pete has apparently told the siblings who he thinks it is, but we actually don't know who. He's like, I put together all your clues. They're like, you really think it's him? <laughs> we don't know who. <laughs> they run to the balcony and they see this inflatable attacking the crowd. This is when the true hero of our movie shows his face. Mason pops up here to help. He's like, we can save the day if you'll just listen to me. <laughs> and he takes Pete to get the sword out of the stone. But we all know it takes 10,000 tongues. So Pete's there like trying to pull it 10,000 times as fast as he can. Because <laughs> yeah, he's like, Dottie just pulled this. So it like, it reset. <laughs> I gotta start over. <laughs> and then Merle, the projectionist is like, hey, there's an off switch, buddy. <laughs> so everybody is showing up to help all the people they accused. <laughs> so Pete finally gets the sword out of the stone. He goes to the balcony, <laughs> jumps on the inflatable and stabs it with the sword. <laughs> Tell me why there was a real sword in that stone in the movie. <laughs> yeah, wait. Yeah, you're telling me this wasn't plastic? You had children tugging at this and this thing was sharp enough to stab an inflatable? Help. This also sounds like another lawsuit, Sean. <laughs> Even if this premiere somehow goes off without a hitch, which I can't imagine at this point in the movie, this multiplex is going down in the court of law. (laughs) (laughs) So the inflatable goes down and then the phantom is spotted. And so Pete chases the phantom from behind the screen. So like now only the audience can see like the shadows or like their outlines. (laughs) I love this. There's this whole sequence where the audience is watching Pete chase the phantom. And it's, yeah, it's just like projected shadows (laughs) on the very big on the back, on the back of the screen. Lots is happening. He's like chasing the phantom. They swing from a rope together and the crowd is like cheering instead of being like, Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Only the siblings seem very worried. There's not one adult in this theater that goes, maybe we should help. They're just all watching and all like, oh. Hey, Mr. Assistant Manager's got Ooh. it on lock. They- <laughs> That's his job, right? <laughs> they tear through the screen. They land on the inflatable. And Pete unmasks the Phantom. Who is it, John? It's Sean. Sean. Who could have thought? <laughs> it asks as many questions as it answers, I think. <laughs> We found out it was Sean. First of all, can I just say, I came up here really not knowing who this was going to be. I was like, truly, like, I was truly invested. Like, who is it going to be? They found out it was Sean and I had so many questions. How'd he tie himself up? How did he hang himself on the door? I don't know. I did think it was Sean, but I, (laughs) like, at one point in the movie, I was like, okay, the key's in his arm. (laughs) Like, the key was in his office. Um, He was missing when everything was happening. (laughs) 
he kept going missing. But then it was also like, yeah, we are never told how he ties himself up, how he handcuffs himself onto, and like, yeah, hangs himself on a door. How he got the giant fan in front of the audience. <laughs> Cycle summer. How one person does all of this. Yeah, none of it's explained. But he is the only person with all of the know-how about the theater other than like the people they've already accused. Yeah. <laughs> he also was notably the person who hung up the balloons at the start of the movie. Like they were like, oh yeah, Sean already got the balloons up and we never see him doing it. But it's like, who else would have done it? <laughs> mm, a true mystery. But yeah, turns out it was Sean all along. And he just did this because he wanted to be noticed. He wanted to be recognized. Niedermeyer had been working him to the bone only to give the general manager position to his son-in-law. La Monica strikes again. <laughs> and Niedermeyer, every time he talks to Sean in this whole movie, gets his name wrong. It's Sean McGibbon and he's like, McNall, McGee. Or he just keeps giving him the wrong name. Niedermeyer's like, Sean, I am not arresting you, but I'll blackball you from any theater in the state. You're fired, obviously. And he gets his name wrong one last time and Sean loses it. And that's when he's like, yeah, I did all of this so you would finally notice me. And also immediately after he says this, Pete's like, maybe I should lighten up. And I think Pete starts to see Sean as kind of a like cautionary tale. He's like, my siblings and my mom were right. I gotta enjoy myself. I cannot turn into Sean. And the siblings are so excited about this, which I thought was really sweet because he's going to spend more time with them. Sean gets his little ending, which is the director of the movie like chases after Sean and is like, can't you see it? Phantom of the Megaplex, the Sean McGibbon story. You move to Hollywood, we'll make this as partners. And then he immediately is like, also get me a cup of coffee. So clearly they are not going to be equal partners. But then, yes, as Avery said, Someone says, uh, it's Brian who's like, all we need now is a four-star Hollywood ending. And so George proposes to the mom. He proposes in their weird, like, repotting metaphor. He's like, <laughs> maybe that's what the plants need. And he's, But then he says, I would really like to become a part of this amazing family, which is so sweet. And he's like, I don't have a ring. And Mason's like, I got one. <laughs> Mason truly pops up out of nowhere one more time. And he's like, I have a loner. I keep props on hand in case of emergencies and has like a fake diamond ring. He stands directly next to the mom and stares at her as he waits for her to say yes. And then the kids are all nodding and Mason's like, say yes. <laughs> she accepts. They're engaged. Yeah. It's beautiful. And then Niedermeyer, at this point, he actually offers... Pete the job to be senior manager and at first Pete says like yeah and then like he looks at his siblings and then he like turns it down because he's like I gotta get a life <laughs> and he's like actually I want the rest of the night off and Niedermeyer's like okay you deserve it <laughs> and he also hands him a crisp $50 bill to buy Caitlin some breakfast <laughs> yeah after the movie so he's like yeah take your girl out at what three in the morning as a 17 year old it's not right. <laughs> we also get this fun little shot of like La Monica being like completely useless. I do not know why they put so much La Monica in this movie. <laughs> they're, like somebody had an axe to grind about like nepotism and they were like, might as well put it in this film. <laughs> and then the Sibs ask Pete to get their mom to let them stay for the premiere. And he's like, actually, mom, I couldn't have done it without them. And mom's like, are you sure they won't cramp your style? 
And Brian says, are you kidding me? We are teaching him style. <laughs> I need you to know Brian says everything a little less aggro than I'm repeating it. <laughs> and it's a sweet, sweet ending. All is well in the world. <laughs> yes, Pete's like, we all need to be together tonight. And what better place for us than the movies? Oh, and what better place for us, Avery, than watching a Disney Channel original movie separately from across the country and then talking about it? <laughs> it was really sweet. Uh, I didn't really remember this one. I had like I vaguely was like, OK, Sean's the meanest guy. Sean will be bad. But I didn't like totally put it together. Um, so I didn't like totally remember. Did you remember what happened in this one at all? I honestly did not. I think I had seen like bits and pieces of this movie and hadn't seen it from beginning to end. So this was basically me seeing it for the first time. A fun family romp. <laughs> did you, how'd you feel? <laughs> you know what? As I was watching it initially, I was like, oh, this movie was okay. But as I'm like talking about it with you, I forgot how like how many funny scenes there were in this movie or like my my cheeks hurt because we've been laughing so much about this movie. So now I think I actually enjoyed it. I completely agree. I had like a I mean, honestly, this one's not like one that super excited me. I was like I, we finished watching it and I was like, this wasn't like the snappiest script and not even like when we talk about decoms, we love talking about how silly they are. And I was like, it wasn't even the silliest script, good, silly or like. This was a terrible movie, bad, silly. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of in the middle. But then again, as we were talking about it, there was a lot of nonsense. <laughs> so maybe more so than I realized. But it's very funny that we both were like immediately like, huh. <laughs> yeah, at first it was okay, but I really enjoyed talking about it. It's definitely, as I would like to describe it, it's a decom indie. Not as big as, say, like Twitches or like Halloween Town, but very, very much a little... A little silent enjoyment. <laughs> uh, yeah, they really have a lot of Halloween decoms. They do. I had a lot of fun with this one. I, I guess <laughs> it like obviously had the single parent, but it didn't totally have a lot of the silly decom things we normally like love talking about, like the montages or the flashbacks to things that just happened. So I think that might have been what was missing. The stuff that's so silly. We're like, why is this happening? <laughs> but it was a blast. It was a movie about how much we love the movies, right? It was a movie for people who love movies. A delight. And then I Googled the screenwriter once I said that, and he is a professor of screen and television at like UC Riverside. Hey! <laughs> also at USC. So he is like clearly someone who loves movies. <laughs> also, he wrote The Land Before Time. Sorry, I just saw that. What? <laughs> Sir, you made hundreds of children cry. <laughs> Thousands, millions. <laughs> I had no idea. I, you do a better segue than I do. Now it's time for Adam's Corner. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Hey, Adam. I don't have a lot to say about this one, but like you two were saying, everything kind of comes full circle with this one in kind of like a weird way. <laughs> um, you kind of mentioned it, but towards the end when the, the blow up, is it an animal? I don't know what it is, but it seems like it's a dragon, right? So... I was like, oh, okay, you know, he uses the sword to slay the dragon. But then I realized that it's Merle who helps him get the sword out of the stone, as in Merlin the wizard from the King Arthur tale, what? who then goes on to slay the dragon of the tale or whatever it is. So I was like, wow, is this a plot to something? So I looked it up and then, of course, you know, 
the sword of the what is it called the sword in the stone is mm-hmm. a 1963 film from disney produced by uh, <laughs> walt himself where you know the kid takes the sword out of the stone and does not slay the dragon but merlin helps him to get the sword Whoa. i guess so. i did not put any of that together that's incredible thank you adam but also there you go. <laughs> i was obsessed with that version of the sword in the stone as a kid high recommend it's a very fun animated movie it's <laughs> But he doesn't slay the dragon in that one, right? I haven't no, seen it myself. I don't think so. Yeah, so I was trying to put that together if it was Lancelot who slays the dragon or uh, Arthur who slays the dragon, but it's definitely Merlin who like makes the main character aware of the sword. Merlin is an earl, so mind blown. Why did they throw that in? <laughs> I guess because it's a Disney movie, maybe. I don't. <laughs> this movie was really meta. <laughs> yeah, it was very meta, but I don't understand why it would be meta about King. Arthur in this instance. Something to keep in mind when we get to Avalon High, another decom which features King Arthur. Um, I also just got to the screenwriters. Oh, any, sorry, Adam, anything else? You want? That's really it. I spent the last 20 minutes looking this up. So. <laughs> um, yes, I also wanted to say, sorry, I went to the screenwriters IMDB and there was a lot going on. This man wrote Smart House, <gasps> wrote Xenon, Wrote Xenon the sequel, The Poof Point. Oh, shoot. True Confessions, Gotta Kick It Up, Going to the Mat, Xenon Z3, Cowbells. Sir, he's written like a dozen decoms. What? This man is a legend. Wild. <laughs> this is so many. <laughs> it's so many more than I was expecting. <laughs> and he also wrote Land Before Time. And Land Before Time. Oh, my Lord. That's so crazy. I wow. have no idea. Are you talking about Stu Krieger? Yes. I have to look this up. He gives and he gives. Also, how do you get that gig, Stu? Let us know. Give us a call. Yes. <laughs> I would, Jahan, if we have a chance to write a decom, holy hell. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the cast. Yes. There were some faces in here that I definitely recognize. The sister, Karen. I like, when she first came on screen, I was like, oh, she looks familiar. Found out she was in My Dog Skip with Frankie Muniz and also in Inspector Gadget 2, which my family had on VHS a lot, but not the first one. So we watched Inspector Gadget 2 often. I recognized her. So maybe I've seen one of those. I even recognized her name, but I could not place her at all. So this is very helpful. Okay. We also were doing some finger pointing at each other because of the mom, Julie, in this movie, or her name is Julie. Yes. Jahan, do you want to tell where she's from? She is also the mom in one of our favorite series, Veronica Mars. Ah! (laughs) I knew I recognized her. I saw her face and I was like, I know this woman. Where do I know her from? And then it was Veronica Mars and I was like, ah! And she's not even in a ton of Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars is a father-daughter story. (laughs) Yes. But she is important when she shows up. Yes. And talk about a show that Jahan and I love. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. Yes. High recommend. Not at all related to this, but you know, if you want to watch something that's a bit of a mystery and for a much more adult audience, yes. Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars. <laughs> Taylor Handley, the lead, mm-hmm. has been on and off in things like he was in a show called Las Vegas with Dennis. No, not Las Vegas. Was he in Las Vegas? He was in something with Dennis Quaid, I think. Oh. Vegas, not Las Vegas, the TNT show with Josh Duhamel, but Vegas. The show with Dennis Quaid, those are two different things. Oh my word. (laughs) I recognized him. He has a pretty important role in the first season of The O.C., which I know many people our age are obsessed with. I've admittedly never seen The O.C. 
he's like this guy, Oliver Sacks, who shows up at the end of the first season and is pretty pivotal. He's like dating Marissa at the end of the first season to the people that matters to I was about to say, you're saying characters and I don't know what you mean. But <laughs> I've only watched the first season, so I only know him. Like, I, so I had seen him and it, it didn't even click because he has really dark hair mm-hmm. in the OC. You know, I'm actually pretty shocked that Taylor Hanley didn't have, like, he seemed perfect as a DCOM protagonist and I'm shocked that he didn't have like more roles in DCOMs, but he was also like 16. But yeah, Jahan, you're absolutely right. He's done like a lot of things. Like he's been constantly working since then. I looked up his IMDb. He's like had a ton of guest spots on like CBS shows. Like this man has literally been on every CBS show for the past decade. Like CSI, CSI Miami, Cold Case, Hawaii Five-0, NYPD Blue. Like he's been in everything. I just want to shout out that George, he is not in anything we have seen necessarily. However, he is best known in Canada, at least from the, I think it's Kokanee beer commercials, where he plays the park ranger who is constantly trying to stop a Sasquatch from stealing the beer. So to our Canadian audience, <laughs> what you might know the mom's boyfriend. <laughs> Interesting. I'm happy for him that he's making that commercial money, but who else? Yes. And then, of course, Mickey Rooney. Oh, yes. A legend. I say this often, and I know I said it with Debbie Reynolds, but this is really, again, one of the most famous guest stars I have witnessed in a decom. And this is the child actor, I feel like, an icon of child acting for decades. From the, like, 1920s on. Mm-hmm. That's so long. He's so old. <laughs> He just seemed like a perfect fit for someone who has been in Hollywood for so long to have a character that talks about like the magic of the movies when he's like had a career spanning like decades in the movies. It just seemed like a perfect fit. I'm glad they got him. I am too. Yeah. Like you said, it just an icon for a role meant for an icon. (laughs) That's pretty much it for the cast. We left out one teeny tiny little bit from the end of the movie. (gasps) What? Which is that they give Mickey Rooney one last moment. He like waves them all into the movie as they go to watch the premiere finally. He stops the little brother and he's like, you know, I never believe in the phantom of the Megaplex. The werewolf of the Megaplex on the other hand. And then you hear like a wolf howl. (laughs) It's very silly. Also, I just want to say, I love the movie poster for this. Have you seen it? No, I... It's like, it's the three siblings tied up in, like, film reel. What? (laughs) Which never happens in the movie, but it's very cute. Also, there's, like, very scary eyes behind them on the poster. (laughs) I've got to look. I've got to look. Oh, wait, I see it. I see it. Oh, we didn't say where the little brother is from. Brian, played by Jacob Smith. Again, people our age might know him as one of the many brothers from Cheaper by the Dozen. (gasps) Oh, really? (laughs) Again, truly just one of countless brothers in this movie, which I love. I am a huge Sheeper by the Dozen fan. <laughs> Wait, I'm still looking at this poster. And do you see it where it says the Cotton Hills Megaplex has 52 employees, 26 theaters, eight concession stands and one unwelcome guest? That's so funny. No, I did not <laughs> see that. <laughs> oh my goodness. What a tagline. <laughs> They were like, let's do a lot of math for this tagline. <laughs> I love it. All right. Any final takes? Uh, no final 
takes. This movie definitely was nostalgic for me. Very early 2000. I mean, this movie came out in the 2000, 2000. So I felt like I was taken back in time. I think it is interesting, though, because we just talked about Spin, which is a movie about like, so diverse and so inclusive. And it was just hard not to notice that like every character in this movie was white, except for April, Karen's friend who she's supposed to be watching University of Death with, and then Racy Lacey. Yes, but it that's was just, it. Yeah, it was just very like night and day <laughs> after watching the spin. Yeah. It's a real like, uh, like, yeah, benchmark of the progress Disney Channel has made. Um, it is a pure decom from the year 2000. We got a lot of pagers. We got a lot of pay phones. Thank you for watching this movie with me, Avery. Thank you. I'm glad that you picked this one. I'm glad you picked this one for us. I hope everyone has a happy Halloween. <laughs> if you're listening to this right when it comes out. Thank you so much for listening. We are at From A to Xenon on Twitter. I'm at Jahan413. I'm at Camille Says36. Adam is at the podcast Adam on all platforms. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> yeah, give us a review. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We've been from A to Xenon. <laughs>